Our passage is Zechariah 11:7 to 11. We'll begin for a context in 14, uh, verse 4, and we'll read to 14. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I shall cause the men to fall into one another's power and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I shall not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs, the one called favor and the other called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut my second staff, union, in pieces to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Amen. In Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, We have studied how this passage is a prediction of the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And that fact did occur in AD 70 by the hands of the Romans during the Roman Empire. And when the Jews were revolting against the empire, they put down the revolt by destroying the temple and enslaving and, and scattering the people. Well, then in. Verses 4 to 14, we have the reason that God was wrathful against the Jews in verses 1 to 3. The reason he was wrathful against the Jews. Last time we saw in verses 4 to 6 that the Father is speaking to the Son, calling on him to pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Pasture the flock of slaughter. And we took the flock to mean the flock generally, those who would be slaughtered, because Christ came and he preached to the multitudes who were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 9 35 to 38. And the reason why they are going to be slaughtered has to do with their own leadership, the religious leadership of the day. Verse 5 They mistreat and abuse the sheep. And they do so in the name of the Lord. Their own shepherds have no pity on them. That's according to verse 5. And then in verse 6, God Himself has no pity 
on the inhabitants of the land. He has no pity on the people, therefore the people have worthless and selfish shepherds governing them and guiding them. And therefore God is going to hand all of them over to destruction in verse 6. He will hand all of them over to destruction and not deliver them from the destruction that they deserved. Well, then in 7 to 11, we continue with what Christ does to pasture the flock, what he does and what happens as a result of him pastoring the flock. We also note that we're taking this interpretation that this passage is about Christ and not about Zechariah the prophet. It's not about the kings or the rulers of any period of time between Zechariah and Christ, but it is about the time of Christ. Because those who take it in the other way, they even have their many doubts about who exactly is the reference here, both the pastor or the shepherd, but also the people and especially the three shepherds as mentioned in verse 8. There is much doubt in the history of interpretation. However, this doubtful interpretation has been more or less in the last couple of hundred of years when the rise of skeptical and rationalistic liberal scholarship arose. They did not want to see this passage as a prediction of the coming Christ. However, in the ancient interpretation, in the Christian church, the ancient interpretation has been to see this as Christological, as fulfilled in Christ. And that's why we are taking that approach here, because it makes most sense if we apply this passage to the work of Christ. And that's what we'll do here in verses 7 to 11. After the father told the son to pasture the flock of slaughter in verses 4 to 6, now he does so in verses 7 to 11. Also, by the way, from last time, we said that sometimes the father does speak to the son. And in our verse, in verse 4, it has a lowercase m for my, for my God. And we said that we should have an uppercase M for my God in verse 4. And this is the way it should be throughout this passage, or, or at least mostly throughout this passage, that it should be understood as Christ. And if one wonders why Christ would say, my God, Remember, he said that in John 20, 17. In John 20, verse 17, Christ referred to his father as my father and my God. He referred to God the Father as his God. And the same, we take it here in Zechariah eleven four. Okay, now the fulfillment The command was given in 4 to 6. Now the fulfillment. Verse 7. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter. I pastured the flock of slaughter. He pastured them generally, that is the nation generally. 
He taught them. He preached among them. He helped them. He ministered to them. He healed them. He did that. But also, he was pastoring the afflicted of the flock. And we take the afflicted of the flock to be the remnant. Those who are spiritually poor. The remnant who are afflicted. They are also the ones mentioned in verse 11. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. Those who understand the fulfillment of the word of the Lord are generally, in this life, they are the believers, the elect, the true sheep. And here they are called the afflicted of the flock. Yes, generally the flock is slaughtered, but these are known as the afflicted of the flock. In what sense are they the afflicted of the flock? We may take it in a couple of ways. One, it has to do with their spiritual poverty, and two, it has to do with the persecutions that they undergo. In the first case, we go to Matthew 5, 3 to 4, to show that they are recognizing their spiritual poverty, spiritual affliction because of their sins. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The poor in spirit, recognizing their spiritual poverty. They have nothing to offer to God. They have humbled themselves. And then in verse 4, those who mourn, not those who mourn generally for any and every affliction, but those who are mourning over their sin, who are remorseful and sorrowful for their sin. Matthew 5, 3 to 4. Then that the people, that the remnant, were called the flock. We also find this in Matthew, Matthew 10, 16, 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. The disciples are called sheep in the midst of wolves. And also in Luke 12, Luke 12:32, our Lord he calls his remnant little flock. Luke 12:32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The afflicted of the flock, we said, is a portion of the greater flock of the greater nation, and therefore they are a small number. And that's why in Luke 12, 32, he calls the disciples little flock. Then in reference to their persecution, reference to their persecution, we find in Romans 8, 36, the following. Romans 8, 36. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. They are, we are considered as sheep 
to be slaughtered. When Zechariah, therefore, refers to the people in his writings as the afflicted of the flock, they are spiritually poor. They recognize their sins and their need for grace and salvation in Christ. They are little in number compared to the mass of people. And the little in number are persecuted like sheep to be slaughtered. This is the way we are called the afflicted of the flock. Further, Zechariah 11.7, he continues by taking hold of two staffs, two staffs or two rods, two sticks. And he says, and I took for myself two staffs, the one called favor and the other called union. So I pastured the flock. Typically, shepherds carry one, but it's not uncommon or unheard of for them to carry two. And that's what he does here. He's carrying two staffs. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the Lord who is carrying two staffs or two sticks to guide and lead the sheep and also to protect them, protect them from wolves and the foxes. He does so here, and he gives them names. The first name is favor. It may be favor, grace, pleasantness. These are synonyms of something good in verse 7. The one is called favor. This one is then broken in verse 10. And I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. He first, when he calls it favor, favor indicates that the favor of God was on the people. What more was there to do for the people that God had not already done for them? He had showered his favor or grace upon them. He blessed them abundantly. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, did he not? On eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Exodus 19, 4, 19, 4 to 6. Exodus 19:4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, with the picture of a garden and a vineyard, Isaiah chapter 5, God explains that he did whatever he needed for there to be a fruitful harvest from the vineyard. And then he says this. He says this in verses 3 and 4. 5, Isaiah 5, 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, 
Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? He did whatever he needed to do as a faithful farmer, faithful gardener, faithful cultivator of his vineyard. He showered his blessings on them. There was nothing more to do. That's why Zechariah says that one of the staffs was called favor. Also, the other staff that he took up is called union. I, he says, the other I called union. And with these, he pastored the flock. Union or cords. This union, it, the staff called union, is mentioned again in verse 14, Zechariah eleven fourteen. Then I cut my second staff, union, in pieces to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The, the covenant of brotherhood, the, to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel, this covenant of brotherhood that the two had, this is what God did for the people to bring them together. He cared for them, he looked after them, he provided for them, And in this way, God took care of them, both with favor and union. In fact, this union that God provided did not become successful throughout all history. In fact, he had to break it, like it says here. He had to break it. And then Ezekiel the prophet, we'll see in Ezekiel 37... In Ezekiel 37, God actually promises that in the future, what failed to happen in history, he is going to make make it come to fulfillment by his sovereign will, sovereign grace, so that this union is a perpetual and eternal union. That which was supposed to be a union of the two, Judah and Israel, the southern part of the land of Israel and the northern part of the land of Israel, that ended up being broken, but one day God will restore it. This restoration, let's see it in Ezekiel 37, 15. Ezekiel 37, 15 to 23. He speaks also here of two sticks or two staffs, and they are separated or broken, but that was not the original intention. The original intention was there to be union between the two nations or two major kingdoms. That did not happen, but God promises a future union. Ezekiel thirty-seven fifteen, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man... Take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these 
Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations. And they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. The fact that he's speaking of a future restoration is actually proven in verse 24, where he promises that it's going to be Christ who's also called David because he's the son of David. 37, 24. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Well, the goal was the grace of God and the union of God, harmony between them all. But that's not what ended up happening in history. Zechariah 11.8. Zechariah 11.8. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. For my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Christ says that he annihilated the three shepherds in one month. Who are these three shepherds? We shall take three shepherds to mean prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And one month to mean a short period of time, a brief period of time, wherein the three offices of prophet, priest, and king are done away with because they could not, they would not, they did not fulfill their duties before God. Their duties before God to help the people, to shepherd the people. So he gets rid of these three offices because he is the only perfect prophet, priest, and king. The fact that these three offices exist or existed in Israel 
is evidenced in Deuteronomy 17.14 through all of chapter 18, 18.22. Deuteronomy 17.14 to 18.22. Moses explains the office of king in chapter 17. And then in the first part of chapter 18, the office of priest. And then in the last part of chapter 18, the office of prophet. These were the three offices for which those who were installed were anointed as prophet, priest, and king. But as we know throughout history, many, many times we, had, we have examples of miserable, selfish, godless prophets, priests, and kings. But Christ is the perfect one. John 16 or John 6:14 John 6:14 When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world the prophet who is to come into the world this is making reference to Deuteronomy 18:15 to 18 or 15 to 19 Deuteronomy 18 15 to 19. The prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet like Moses. The people acknowledged that that's who Christ was. In Hebrews chapters 5 to 10, Hebrews chapters 5 to 10, repeatedly the apostle asserts that the great priest over the house of God is Christ. He holds the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the priesthood of Aaron or of the tribe of Levi. He has the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that priesthood is a superior priesthood. According to also Genesis 14, 17 to 24, and Psalm 110, verse 4. And then Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. Christ is the perfect office holder of priest. Because he offers up his perfect body, not an unblemished animal, for the forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, he is a king. Christ is a king. This is mentioned in John 18.37. John 18.37. When he is interrogated by Pilate... John 18:37 Pilate therefore said to him So you are a king Jesus answered You say correctly that I am a king for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice And also John 19:19 19, 19. 19, 19 and Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. He annihilates these offices because the shepherds in these offices are worthless or were worthless. And by the time of between AD 30 and AD 70, by the time of the destruction of the temple, these 
offices and ministries of the people, the Hebrew nation, they did not continue anymore. The last of the prophets were John the Baptist and Christ. They had no possibility of a Judean king by AD 70. And then the priesthood was essentially nullified because they could not offer sacrifices in the temple. It was abolished. And this he did in a short time. Well, why did he do this? Because he says in verse 8, For my soul was impatient with them. It says Christ was impatient with them. Now, this impatience does not mean a fickle and knee-jerk reaction kind of impatience. It's talking about how he did wait a long time, but he's not going to be patient forever. So in that sense, he was impatient. That is, his patience had an end. Their sins reached its full measure, and now it was time to punish them. That's what he means by impatient. It was time to punish them, to confront them, to give them what they deserved. This impatience of God in reference to sin, we find it in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, verses 10 to 15. Isaiah 1, 10 to 15. He's addressing Israel, though he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. The people would come in their solemn assemblies. They would come for their festivals. They would come on the Sabbaths and on other days to offer their worship and to offer their sacrifices. But God is saying... What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough. I take no pleasure. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn solemn, assembly. Assembly, meaning, why is it that you sin every day 
and then you come and worship me. That's what he means by this. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And he doesn't even want to hear the noise of the sinner's prayers, the unrepentant sinner's prayers. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. God does not want to hear the noise of unrepentant sinners' prayers. They're worthless, and they are a nuisance to him. So he is impatient, and he says, I don't want it anymore. Jesus himself expressed this impatience towards the false shepherds of his day. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. For context, we'll read 23, 1 to 3. 23, 1 to 3. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe... But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Do you think by the end of this chapter, Christ was happy or he was angry and irritated and impatient with them? Impatient in the sense that his tolerance had an end. Notice what he says. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. 17, you fools and blind men. 19, you blind men. 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Is he not upset with them and impatient now with them? Look now at verse 32, 32 to 33. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He doesn't tell them to stop and repent in 32. He tells them to continue sinning. Go on, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Continue in your sins. And then he taunts them. Yes, Christ Jesus. He taunts them in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He's taunting them. He knows that they cannot escape. And so he's putting it out there for them to understand their misery before their misery is experienced. And then 
the judgment on this generation, he says in 34 to 36. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And in 38, he says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house is being left to you desolate. The punishment for the patience of Christ, they wore it out, and therefore they were judged. But it's not as though only Christ was impatient with them. They also despised Christ. They also were weary of Christ. They also hated Christ. They wanted nothing to do with him. This is a fact, a fact that we find, for example, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, verse 12. The prophet is preaching repentance and forgiveness. In chapter 18. But after he preaches this, repentance and forgiveness, they say this, 18.12. But they will say, it's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. It's hopeless to repent. It's hopeless to believe. And we are going to follow our own plans. And each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Yes, unbelievers actually do call their sins stubbornness and evil. They will acknowledge it. They will say those words. It's not us imposing those words on them. They know in their heart and many times they will say it and admit it. Yes, I'm doing evil. Leave me alone. Yes, I'm stubborn. Leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. They are that way. And they do say it that way. What, what, what they're doing is the same as 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They purposely turn their ears away from the truth to turn aside to myths. The myths will give them soothing words. The myths are spoken by their soothsayers. That's why they want to listen to the myths and not to the truth. It's 
The punishment that they receive from Christ is a punishment that they deserve because they have first repudiated Christ. They repudiate Christ, then Christ in turn repudiates them by punishing them. Then we come to verse 9, Zechariah eleven nine. Then I said, I will not pastor you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. He's leaving these people to their appointed doom. Each one with his appointed doom. He's leaving the people to suffer their punishment in that way. Jeremiah 15.2. Jeremiah 15.2. And it shall be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then you are to tell them, thus says the Lord, those destined for death to death, and those destined for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine, and those destined for captivity to captivity. Whatever appointed punishment they deserve, they will indeed receive. Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5, 9 to 17. Ezekiel 5, verse 9. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore... Fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eye shall have no pity, and I will not spare." One-third of you will die by the plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by, by the sword around you. And one-third I will scatter to every wind. And I will unsheath a sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent and I will satisfy my wrath on them and I shall be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I shall send to destroy you, then I shall also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. That which happened in the time of the Babylonians will also happen in the time of the Romans when Christ unleashes the Romans against the Jews. That's verse 9. 
Verse 10. And I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. First, we take all the peoples in the plural to be a reference to the peoples of Israel. Whether we're talking about the two kingdoms or all the tribes or the leadership, we're referring to the people of Israel when it says all the peoples. This is not a reference to all the nations of the earth. And cross-references where the plural of peoples is used for Israel may be found in Acts 4.27, Deuteronomy 33.3, and Joel 2, verse 6. Acts 4.27, Deuteronomy 33.3, Joel 2, verse 6. In these places, um, whether the English has it or not, if you refer to the original language in these places, it is in the plural. Peoples, when these passages are dealing with Israel. And in this way, Zechariah is referring to the people as, in the plural, peoples, the people of Israel. And perhaps so because they were numerous, abundantly blessed, and many tribes and two nations. But the staff called favor is cut in pieces. God breaks his covenant with them. Why did God, or why is God saying he will break his covenant with them? God doesn't break covenants, correct? Well, because the people did first. Such as Jeremiah 3, 6. Jeremiah 3, 6 to 10. Jeremiah 3, 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. God says that because of their treachery, faithlessness, he sent her away and gave her a writ of divorce. God broke the covenant. They broke it, and then God says, okay, that's it, no more. I'm not your husband anymore because of your unrepentant harlotries. This is the way in which Christ is breaking the favor and the covenant with the people because they have repudiated him. They have rejected him. They have committed harlotry with their idols and immorality. Verse 11. 
Verse 11. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. That day, that day, or as he said in verse 8, one month, a short period, that day at that point in time in history, when Christ broke the covenant and rejected them, such as we read in Matthew 23. When he rejected them, it says, the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. When the prophecy came to fulfillment, when it reached fulfillment, then they understood, they had confirmation that Christ was a true prophet, and he was the Son of God, the Savior. In John 2, John 2:22, we read, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus predicted, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But after he was raised from the dead, they remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and Jesus' word, because the two were in harmony. It gave them further confirmation that it was indeed the word of the Lord. And then in actuality, we find it happening in John 20, verse 9. John 20, verse 9. On the day of resurrection, when John and Peter went to the tomb, it says this, John 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And now they are beginning to understand this scripture over a period of 40 days. The same in the case of Zechariah 11, 11. When God's word is fulfilled, it grants us greater confirmation, therefore greater faith to believe in whatever he says. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it is a blessing or a curse, let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.